Uh, well, I'm so glad that you could make the time for us while you're um, on quote unquote tour. <laughs> yeah, it's a huge honor to have you. Oh, yeah. come on. <laughs> so many, so many, so many damn books. Welcome to So Many Damn Books. I am Christopher. I am Drew. And Ruth Ozeki is joining us in the damn library Zoom hyperspace uh, spot. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for, thanks for inviting me. Ruth Ozeki, if you didn't already know, is a novelist, filmmaker, and Zen Buddhist priest. She is the award-winning author of three novels, My Year of Meats, All Over Creation, and A Tale for the Time Being, which was a finalist for the 2013 Booker Prize. Her nonfiction work includes a memoir, The Face, A Time Code, and the documentary film, Having the Bones. She is affiliated with the Everyday Zen Foundation and teaches creative writing at Smith College, where she is the Grace Jarko Ross 1933 Professor of Humanities. And you are the recent author of The Book of Form and Emptiness. Yes. And I am so excited to talk to you about it. <laughs> I've been like singing this book's praises on this podcast Aww. for a few mm -hmm. episodes now. And now we get to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. Well, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a fitting book for this podcast, I think, because it's, you know, <laughs> for so many reasons. We yes. don't have to. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're going to get to your book. Okay. People who listen to this podcast probably love books. And if you love books, you're probably going to love Scribd. Forbes and TechCrunch and Wired all called Scribd Netflix for books. And that means that there are millions of ebooks, audiobooks, magazines, and more that you get with your subscription to this incredible service. You also get thoughtfully curated editor's picks and smart recommendations based on what you've read. Scribd is incredibly easy to use, really fun. I used it to listen to Lisa Letts' Spellman series, and that was really wonderful. So I always get a warm feeling when I see the app icon on my phone. And you too can use Scribd. Right now, Scribd is offering our listeners a free 60-day trial. Go to try.scribd.com smdb for your free trial. That's try.scribd.com smdb to get 60 days of Scribd for free. But before we go much further, I... It concocted a cocktail inspired by it. I'm calling it the Aleph. Okay. And it's uh, three ounces of grapefruit juice, two ounces of vodka, and then one ounce of black pepper and dill infused simple syrup. And then you put a little sprig of dill on the top that looks like this when you're finished and it's got this crazy herbalness that I don't think you would even if I didn't tell you that it was dill yeah. you wouldn't necessarily know that that's what it is because it's this sort of elusive flavor um, but it's delicious to me and um, it's also I think fitting because the Aleph herself is elusive and shows up and you know she's there yeah. or she's gone and you're like wait did I was she even there at all and I feel like that's how uh, the dill is here and I was thinking there's yeah. so many great characters and in, in this book that I could make a cocktail for or inspired by but um, a couple of them I didn't wouldn't want them to drink actually <laughs> <laughs> I would rather they didn't drink right, um, right. so this more I want to do something that we would drink inspired by the book um, but right. I still had to use vodka because it's named so heavily throughout that's right. That's right. I love the I love the kind of sour bitter thing that's going on with the grapefruit and then the peppery thing too. Yeah. And it's that's fantastic. That's that's brilliant. I wish I was serving it to you, but you know, I wish you're, so too. Yeah. <laughs> you're, with the, you're with the listeners here. We all have to just imagine, except for me. Um, and I'm gonna be sipping it slowly as we record here. So great. Are you gonna put you're gonna put that recipe up on the website, right? Yes, so, that goes cool. up on on so many damn books.com. Um, we have it on the episode as well as if you just click over to the damn bar, you can see the hundreds of cocktails I've created for other books also. Fantastic. 
did you make or buy the simple syrup? Because that's a, black pepper and dill, pretty ambitious. I did make it myself. It's actually really easy to make. You only need about a teaspoon of black peppercorns and a, and a, a bunch of dill that you nice. make, that you put in while you're making your simple syrup. And you just let it sit. And once it's cool, it's infused enough and you strain it out. Cool. That's yeah. great. Have, do you know, are, are you guys in New York? Where are you? I'm in Brooklyn. And I'm uh, upstate New York, outside of Kingston. Okay, okay. Um, do you know Anyway Cafe down on 4th Street in, in uh, Manhattan? I it's, do know that from when I used to live down there. Yeah. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's like a Russian vodka place. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, and you should definitely go there. They have like the best vodka martinis and, you know, of, of so many different kinds. You could, you could, you know, make this for them. I bet they'd put it on the menu. <laughs> I have ambitions, you see. (laughs) (laughs) But I have ambitions, too. I understand that. (laughs) Us and Dolly Parton. Cup of ambition, I guess. Okay. The next thing that we do is, um, what did you buy? Ah, yes. So I would love to hear, Drew, why don't you start us off and give us the shape? I received this book, uh, a galley. I didn't even know that it, this book was coming out. It's Neil Stevenson has a new one. It is predictably a huge doorstopper. It's called Termination Shock. And it is, it's his climate change book from the sounds of things. I don't know too much else than that, but... I'm picking and choosing my my climate change books because I feel like there are a lot of them coming and I've read some of my favorite authors who like have gotten in early like Alex Kleeman and Jeff Vandermeer and so now I'm a little bit like all right I wa- what do I want next mm-hmm. and I feel like sort of a big dense super tech heavy version of that I have a little bit of like yeah how is his like James Bond villain except he writes novels brain gonna (laughs) manipulate this story so i'm excited to see how it goes when i'm ready for a 700 another enormous doorstopper yeah definitely ruth how about you what did i just what have i bought recently well um this isn't this is kind of weird it's not a thing it's it's like um i've just i've been into um listening to audiobooks of the books that I really love. Mm. And so I've been, you know, I've been buying a lot of audio. Not, I mean, you don't buy audiobooks. You just kind of get them right on, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> on Audible, you, you know. But anyway, I mean, yeah. So um, so the one that I got recently and I've been listening to and just love it, it you know, I mean, I love the book, you know, reading the book itself. Um, but uh, now just listening to the performance is just mind blowing is Black Swan Green by David Mitchell. Mm. And oh my, have you, have you listened to this performance? It's, it's fantastic, it's really good. I mean, you get one whole sense of the book when you read it on the page, right? Mm-hmm. And then, and I'm glad I read it on the page first because you know, that's the way books are kind of meant to, I mean, you know, you have, you, you listen to them you know, in your own voice, as it were, right? Mm-hmm. When you read them on the page, but, um, you know, but but listening to the performance is really fantastic. And I, I just really enjoyed it. And another one that I um, have just really, really loved is um, Madeline Miller's uh, Circe. Mm. Um, again, just a, you know, fantastic book to read on the page, you know, so beautiful, but then listening to it just has a completely, you know, it, it brings a completely different, um, aspect uh, sort of alive. And, and I, I've just really been enjoying that. That makes sense to me. I, I, um, I love turning to the audiobook right after I've read it sometimes, yeah. like, um, I'll never forget reading the secret history by Donna Tart, and then she actually read her own audiobook and it's Whoa. a very crazy because she's got a very <laughs> she makes some specific choices in there yeah. that i just loved um and it's a completely different experience interesting i read the i did my audiobook i read my audiobook for the the previous book for a tale for the time being and 
it was the best experience I've ever, best publishing experience I've ever had. Really? Um, it was, it was so much fun. Uh, you know, I didn't know it was going to be that much fun. And I, I didn't realize that I was actually going to read it with voices. Um, but I got there, you know, in the studio and apparently I'm a bit of a ham and, um, <laughs> and, and these voices just started coming. Right. And it was, you know, okay. I mean, can I brag a little bit? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. So, um, the, you know, this was the first audio book that I'd read and I had mm. to convince them that I yeah. should be allowed to read mm -hmm. it. Right. Um, and I, you know, sort of pointed out that there's both Japanese and French in the book. So they would need to find somebody who really could pronounce Japanese and French. And, um, and also in the book, um, there's a character named Ruth, who's a, <laughs> who's a, um, you know, an, well, okay. So it's an autobiographical character, right? <laughs> and, and so, um, and, and so it just seemed really appropriate that I should be able to read it anyway, you know, I'm an amateur when it comes to reading, um, audiobooks. And so they booked, um, I think they booked like eight days of, you know, nine to five studio time for me, wow. right? Just so that, you know, so that I could do lots and lots of takes and stuff like that. And, um, okay, this is where I brag. I did it in four days. Nice. Oh yeah, it was like Half 500 something pages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was just so much fun. I loved it. I loved it. <laughs> that's so great. That's awesome. Yeah, and that's also, I mean, I, I've worked with authors who've wanted to read their own books before and they tapped out and they were just like, never mind. Actually, I don't want to do this. <laughs> so I, yeah. I admire it. Uh, that's so cool. Yeah, it was great. Okay. My, it's, I guess it's my turn. Um, I got this, this is sent from the Columbia University Press. It's called A Revolution in Three Acts, The Radical Vaudeville of Burt Williams. Um, Eva Tangue and Julian Eltinge by David Hajdu and John Kerry. And it's graphic nonfiction about three very revolutionary vaudevillian acts. And I Ooh. love the art in it. It seems totally fascinating. I, um, I think that graphic novels for vaudeville is like a perfect <laughs> marriage of like form and function. Uh, I've I had never heard of these vaudevillians before, and I don't know much about the era. I'm so excited to get this sort of introduction into it. Cool. That sounds great. I loved his last um, David Hajdu's last novel, Adrian Geffel, a novel was wonderful. Um, just a completely fascinating novel. So I'm I'm really excited to see him in a completely different form. Cool. That's that. All right, so now, now the moment we've truly been waiting for. I guess, Ruth, the thing that we should do is, would you tell our listeners who maybe haven't picked up the book yet or have it staring at them from their shelves what the Book of Form and Emptiness is about? Sure. Um, well, it's about a boy um, named Benny, Benny O, and his, his last name is O-H. Um, and he's... Uh, when he's 12 years old, his father, um, who's, who's Japanese-Korean, uh, dies. He's a, he's a Japanese-Korean jazz musician who, who plays uh, big band, swing, klezmer kind of jazz, right? And, um, and he, uh, he, he dies in a really, you know, just stupid and unnecessary way. Um, he's hit by a, a truck. And um, Benny... Uh, sees the aftermath of this from his window. And, and so he's, he's quite traumatized. And um, during the, uh, you know, sort of after the funeral um, at, the, at the, you know, crematorium, um, he hears his dad calling his name, right? And, um, and, and this continues for about a year for him, you know, and then little by little his dad, and, and so this was kind of comforting to him at first, mm -hmm. right? To hear his dad because it seemed like his dad was still around. Um, but then little by little, that sort of fades away. And, and one night he has a dream. And after he has, it's, it was kind of a special dream, but after he has this dream, um, he, he realizes that he is hearing other voices. And these voices are coming from the things in the house around him. Right. Um, as it, 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 you know, he, he steps on a, on a Christmas ornament and he hears the Christmas ornament starting to cry. Right, starting to wail, 
know? And um, at first he doesn't quite understand what to do about this, right? And, and then he starts realizing that he's hearing other voices too. He doesn't really know what they're saying, but he uh, has a sense of the feeling tone of the object, right? What the object might be, what, my, what the object might be feeling. Um, and it's a problem because his mom, um, Annabelle, uh, is a media monitor. So she's listening to radio, she's listening to television, she's taping, she's, you know, clipping newspapers. There's just a lot of, you know, noise, media noise coming into the house, right? Um, and, and she uh, is, well, and this is the thing, she's sent, you know, she's, her office is closed and she's sent to work from home. Right, um, like so many of us, right? And we suddenly, right, we suddenly find ourselves at home and all of our work stuff is like surrounding us, piling up in our bedrooms and stuff like that, right? And that, that's what happened to Annabelle. She's also a bit of a collector and um, mm -hmm. she, she loves things and she has a kind of an eBay habit. And um, so, you know, the house that Benny lives in is just filled with objects, it's filled with things. And, um, you know, eventually the things, the, the voices kind of follow him out of the house and, and follow him to school um, where he gets, you know, he gets into trouble. And mm -hmm. um, he's sent to see the school nurse and, and soon he's, you know, in a child psychologist's office being diagnosed. Um, and and uh, and medicated, um, and so the, so this you know this problem kind of gets worse and worse, and eventually um, Benny uh, seeks refuge at a large public library, right? Where of course libraries are filled with objects, right? They're filled with speaking objects. Mm -hmm. Books, that's what books are, right? They're, they're objects that speak to us. Um, and, and so at the library, you know, it's filled with speaking objects, but the objects um, are orderly, right? They, they um, and yeah. they, they speak in their library voices, you know, they're kind of quiet. And Benny finds this very soothing. And at the library, he meets all sorts of, you know, different people. He meets, he meets the, the Aleph, the, um, the, this young performance artist, um, who he falls in love with, of course. Um, and then he meets a uh, homeless Slovenian poet philosopher named Slavos, who holds literary salons in the, um, uh, in the men's washroom. Um, you, you guys would, you know, I mean, you guys would love him. <laughs> and, um, and then he meets a librarian, children's librarian, who's, you know, uh, kind of a superhero because mm -hmm. librarians are superheroes, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And, um, and then he meets, but the, you know, he also meets this um, very special object. Um, it's, it's a book and it's his book. Um, and in fact, it's the book of form and emptiness. And he, um, he's, the book speaks to him. Um, and he starts to talk back and, uh, the, uh, kind of dialogue develops between the two of them. And actually this is the structure and the format of the book of form and emptiness. It's the book kind of telling Benny into being, narrating his life and telling, telling the boy into being. Um, but it's a little bit of a, you know, kind of which came first, the chicken or the egg? Because, you know, is Benny creating the book or is the book creating Benny, right? But the whole book is, a, is um, set up as a, as a dialogue between the book and the boy. And mm -hmm. they talk back and forth and they, you know, they argue and they, you know, they have a whole kind of dynamic. Um, and, but ultimately, you know, the book teaches Benny uh, to listen to the things that really matter, you know, and, and it's through the conversation with the book that Benny is able to find his own voice. Wow. <laughs> the, yeah. You mentioned the like chicken egg thing, and mm -hmm. it leads me to a question that I have been dying to ask you since I started reading this. And when I, I realized it's probably, I'm flipping through, it's maybe 20 or so pages in the realization that the chapter breaks as we think of them like chapter one chapter two chapter three don't necessarily align with the voice shifts mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. it, it it caused me to flip back christopher and i both have galleys of this and you wrote a very lovely note to the readers of the galleys where you were talking about uh the uncanny sense that something else has been doing the writing and that that felt really strong for this and hearing you talk about who's who comes first benny or the book mm -hmm. Who came first for you? Benny came first. Um, I had a I had a sense of a character, um, and very often, you know, I'll I'll get a sense. You know, characters kind of come to me as voices too. You know, I, I get I kind of, you know, I kind of hear the the character speaking, um, and 
usually that's where, you know, and, and just hearing the character say a few lines or, or um, it gives me a sense of who the character is. And, and so I write those lines down and, um, and then that leads to something else. And, you know, little by little, the character kind of emerges from there. Um, and so Benny definitely came first. Um, you know, I don't really know where he came from, but I remember when I wrote the first lines of the book, um, well, the first scene that I wrote was um, uh, the scene where Benny has this dream, right? Mm. And, um, and, and I don't know really where it came from, except that um, I was at, on 14th Street, there's a um, writing, like a writer's room called Paragraph. Mm -hmm. And um, so I was kind of test driving the, the uh, desks at Paragraph to see if it was a place where I could, you know, where, where I could hang out and where right. I could write. Because um, I have a really, really small apartment in New York, so I kind of needed to get out of there. And um, so I went to Paragraph and I sat down at one of the desks and I thought, well, if I'm going to write here, I better see if I can write here, you know. Mm -hmm. And so I had my computer and I opened it up and I just, I don't know, I just wrote that scene. Um, mm -hmm. And that was the, that was kind of the beginning. And, you know, it, the, the book came later. Um, the, the, the book came from an impulse that I had to try to write something in an omniscient voice, um, because mm. I've never really been able to do that. Um, <laughs> and, um, and I've always kind of thought, you know, well, real writers can write in third person omniscient, right? So <laughs> why can't I, right? I always write in, either, you know, sort of close, you know, third person or first person, but I've just never really been able to master that omniscient voice. And um, so the book came from, you know, that impulse to try to, um, to write, to try to write in a more, you know, super omniscient, uh, you know, from that kind of place. Um, wow. But of course, then I couldn't do that either. So that's why the, the book then turned into a character. Right? <laughs> <laughs> which is a violation of the super omniscient voice because it's not supposed to be attached to a character, right? So I failed once again. <laughs> Gosh, I wish my failures read that good. Um, the, um, I loved when they started fighting um, and they would really like go back and forth on like, you're not supposed to talk about that stuff. I, th I thought I told you, um, which I, I absolutely loved. And there's, it's, it speaks to a larger thing that I feel like it connects some of your work just that the, that books are magic, that books have magic. Um, with the book as a voice and then in um, Tale for the Time Being, the diaries connecting people and then tidy magic in this leaping off the shelf and leaping off stacks. <laughs> and I, I would love to hear more about your relationship with books to, and magic. Yeah, um, this is a little bit of a non sequitur, but I remember, um, I remember, uh, the moment when I really decided to be a writer, to be a fiction writer, when I decided that I, I had to try. And it was like, uh, I can't even remember, it's so embarrassing to say, but it was like in the 1970s, I think. And um, I think it must've been like 1977 or 78. And I was in, uh, I was trekking in Nepal Okay. And I had a copy of a hundred years of solitude with me. Right. Mm. And it was the first time I'd ever read it. And, you know, I was, I was like in the Himalayas and, you know, sort of wandering through these, you know, these rhododendron forests and, and staying in these tiny little, you know, villages. And, you know, it was, it was just the most magical place that I'd ever seen. And, and I was reading hundred years of, you know, of solitude, right? And I just remember thinking like, you know, I, I have to do that. I have to try to do that, right? That, that is, that's magic. That, that's, you know, the, he, Gabriel Garcia Marquez is doing some kind of magic and I don't know how he's doing it, but I want to do that too. And, and so then fast forward like 40 years or something, um, you know, and I still haven't really been able to do it. You know, I, I, I felt that, um, you know, the first two novels I wrote were really reality, you know, they were very reality bound, right? And I started getting really, really frustrated with the limits of my mind, you know, because I still had this kind of thought that, you know, that if I could just push through 
you know, and tap something else, then I could find, you know, I could find that magic. Um, and so I think I, you know, I, with a tale for the time being, I started trying to do that. I started trying to, um, you know, sort of break the, you know, the, the reality container um, and, uh, you know, and find something else. And, um, you know, and then with this book too, I, I, you know, I'm kind of pushing, you know, towards, uh, you know, uh, and, and in this book, it really is that objects are, you know, objects are magical, right? Or they're not, but they, you know, um, they uh, certainly appear to be magical, right? And mm -hmm. children, children can see the magic in, in things, right? Mm -hmm. Children have no problem seeing the magic in things. Everything's animate for it, you know, for a child. Um, but we lose that as we, as we get older. And certainly books, um, you know, to me seem to be a repository for magic. Um, you know, what we, what we do as writers is, is try to tap that, you know, however we do it, you know, whether it's realistic or magical, magically realistic or, or whatever, but, um, but yeah, it, they, they have tremendous power. Wow. And so that's what I was trying to get at. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm curious how that works for um, your, your relationship to Zen and, mm. um, and how that connects because as a Zen Buddhist priest and as a fiction writer, I don't know why I feel like those things would be opposed, but it seems like they might be. Oh, yeah, right. No. Um, <laughs> Zen is Zen is real. I mean, Zen is, you know, is, is well, it, it's the Zen that I practice, the tradition I practice in is, is uh, Japanese uh, Zen. Um, and it's very informed by, um, you know, by uh, indigenous Japanese um, you know, religion, the, the Shinto religion. Um, and, and so, you know, the Shinto religion is a animistic religion, right? And mm. objects are, you know, objects are imbued with magic, right? Mm. And there's a tradition of that, you know, before, even before, you know, Zen came to Japan, um, there, there's a, you know, tradition that goes back to China and India as well, where, you know, the, the, the world is a kind of a magical place, right? And, um, so there's a very famous Zen koan, which is, um, uh, do insentient beings, in other words, things, objects, right? Do insentient beings speak the Dharma? You know, do they, mm. you know, do they have, uh, you know, do, do they um, express, you know, the Dharma, the, the you know, the, the uh, precepts and the, you know, um, the principles of, of, of Buddhism, right? And, um, and, and that is interesting, I think, because, you know, the, 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 that was really one one of the koans that kind of inspired this book, right? I was thinking about that and I was thinking, well, you know, if in, uh, you know, I mean, the answer to the koan is yes, right? <laughs> um, you know, but, uh, you know, I was thinking that if insentient beings, if, if, if matter has vibrancy, right? If, if matter has vi its own vitality, then what would it be saying, you know? And is there a difference mm -hmm. between things that are made and things that are unmade, right? Um, you know, made objects carry a certain kind of aura of the maker attached to it, right? Maybe, I don't know, maybe this is all, you know, um, what I'm, I'm kind of playing with in the book. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it just opened up a really interesting, you know, line of inquiry. Like if, if a book could literally speak to us, you know, what would it say? And, and what kind of being would that book be? You know, um, those are right. the kinds of things that yeah. I was playing with. There's something neat about that too, from specifically from the writer's point of view, where that idea that you are in dialogue with something that while you're writing, it is unformed, mm -hmm. but that it can feel like it's insistent. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I keep coming back to that note at the beginning, but also the way that this book, it, it feels, um, it feels alive. It feels like, when you're reading it, there, there were moments where I felt like, you know, it was entirely in my head, but I felt like the book was sort of like doing this, like in a, a fantasy movie, like a nineties mm. Disney movie where like you can almost see the strings as the book is like jerking around in somebody's hands. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that. It's like Fantasia, right? Yeah. yeah right. When you were writing it, yeah. were there moments where you felt like you were, I don't want to say fighting necessarily, but were there moments where you, as the writer, you were like, I think it wants to go this way. And the book itself 
was kind of like, no, 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 we're going to go this way. Oh, yeah. I never thought that. I, I mean, I never tried to impose. I let the I let the book do what it wanted to do. Um, and in fact, you know, okay, so, you know, earlier I was talking about how I got really tired with the constraints of my own imagination and my own mind, you know, the mm -hmm. ruts that our minds get into, right? Um, and, and I was thinking, well, that must clearly be why I, you know, am incapable of writing like Gabriel <laughs> Garcia Marquez. Um, no, I'm just kind of kidding. But um, I mean, I'm, I'm not kidding. Um, but the uh, but so what I did is I, I had these little games that I played that um, I, I kind of designed to, to, to introduce a kind of random factor into the writing um, that I couldn't control, right? So in other words, I was constantly trying to defeat my own, you know, writerly attempts to control the story. And the, the rule that I made was that, you know, because the book is about objects, um, I decided that if any object entered my life that was kind of interesting, I would put it into the book and see what happened, right? Oh. And so, yeah, and so um, my editor went to a, uh, went on vacation to like a, I don't know, some beautiful tropical place that, you know, I've never been to. And um, she came back and she gave me this. She gave me, oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> right. It's a sea turtle snow globe, right? It's a snow globe with a sea turtle in it. And she gave this to me and I just thought, oh, that's, that's great. You know, like what a thing. Um, I'm just gonna put it into the book and see what happens, right? And so I did, I gave it to Annabelle cause she's a collector. And the next thing I knew she was, um, you know, collecting snow globes on eBay, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. And um, so that, that was cool. Um, and then, but then little by little the snow globe became a kind of metaphor or a symbol for for Benny kind of trapped in you know this 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 world of you know of you know the voices right um and Annabelle his mother they're kind of on the outside of the glass looking in and unable to reach him right and um and so that was interesting too that was like a you know a, a kind of a nice symbol then the next thing i realized was that the the alif who's um the the young performance artist the artist right who benny falls in love with um she makes snow globes right mm -hmm. so she started you know she started making these snow globes that were you know disaster snow globes of you know like hurricane katrina and you know um hurricane sandy and 911 and you know she would make these kind of um these spooky um, disaster snow globes. Um, and so that was all happening. And I thought that was really great. And, um, and then uh, the next, another thing that happened was that, um, you know, because I was writing about a library, my agent um, said, oh, you really need to, um, you need to read Walter Benjamin's um, Unpacking My Library, right? Mm -hmm. And I'd, I'd read it in college, but that was like a long time ago. And so um, I, I, you know, pulled out my old copy of it and reread that. And it was just filled with like stuff that I, you know, that I loved, right? Just beautiful lines. So then Walter Benjamin kind of entered the book, right? Mm -hmm. um, and started showing up in the epigraphs, right? Mm -hmm. And, and, you yeah. know, and, and then of course the book narrator would know Walter Benjamin's work, right? And so the book starts to quote Walter Benjamin and, and then Walter Benjamin actually becomes, you know, his, his life story is kind of told in the book, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and as part of this, I was doing a lot of reading, you know, I was just like immersing myself in Walter Benjamin and I was reading his correspondence with Adorno, another ph philosopher. And um, in the letter, a letter that Adorno wrote, he mentions Walter Benjamin's collection of snow globes. Oh my God. Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> right? And so this is what I mean. It's like, you know, when I say that I didn't write the book, you know, that like, mm -hmm. you know, that, that, you know, the book just kind of wrote itself. That's the kind of stuff I'm talking about. Like when something like that happens, you really do not feel like you're in control of it. Right. Wow. It just, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's funny <laughs> that I, it reminds me of a thought that I was writing down in the margins of this, of your book, because I've never read, I hadn't read any Borges. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I was beating myself up about it because, you know, I have a MFA, dang it. Like I should have been, someone should have shown it, made, sat me down and made me read him at some point. But then I thought, no, like 
some of the best books lead you to other books and and they unlock them for you and it was just like oh now's now's the time for me to go and pick up my more Borges which I did have on a shelf thank goodness (laughs) just just never quite made that leap (laughs) it never leapt into my hands like I needed it to until I read your book so like that's sort of I like that my book is very happy to hear that. <laughs> My book is feeling very chuffed right now. <laughs> That's so cool. I'd love to hear about making up a teenage voice because you've, you've done it a couple times now. You did it with now in, in time being, and then Benny here, and you and it makes so much sense that um, Black Swan Green is speaking to you as well, <laughs> yeah. because right? what an amazing teenage oh voice God. that is. Um, but how, how do you go about creating and, and finding your teenage self? <laughs> I mean, I don't really know. Um, <laughs> it, it's, I don't think that I've, I mean, she's just there, you know, um, she's always, you know, so often I wish she weren't, you know, but, um, <laughs> but she just, you know, seems to be there um, all the time. And um, so when, you know, when I start writing, what, I mean, now definitely was, you know, I mean, I think I was just kind of channeling a, you know, sort of an updated version of my teenage self, but, you know, she was, she, you know, I, I felt very close to now and there was never a struggle with her voice. It just kind of came. Um, she, she got a little, you know, overly enthusiastic at times and I kind of had to, you know, rein her in, but most of the time it was just, you know, very, very easy. She just, she was just always there for me. Um, with Benny, um, you know, because he's a boy, um, you know, I've never been a teenage boy. Um, Lucky. (laughs) Right, right, right. I gather it's pretty rough, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I have, uh, friends, you know, with teenage sons and, um, and, you know, I'm, who I'm very close to. And so, you know, I think there was certainly, you know, I, I, there was a period, you know, the last eight years while I was, you know, writing this book and they were going through their teen years. Um, when I, you know, I studied them very closely. (laughs) (laughs) So I, you know, uh, that, that was, that was very, very helpful. Um, Jane Goodall comes to mind. (laughs) (laughs) that's great that's really great (laughs) well you know my 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 dad uh was an anthropologist um so i and you know yeah so i always used to you know joke joke that i was half japanese and half anthropologist (laughs) comes in handy (laughs) definitely Is um the other character, the the author of Tidy Magic ends mm. up her own character ends up being able to tell her story and she has some things in common with Marie Kondo and mm-hmm. I w- I would just love to hear more about the because what a great title um the life changing magic of tidying up or also tidy magic in general like I just it, it it does feel sort of a life-changing thing. Yeah. Oh, well that now, and you see, that's interesting because the, the, the fictional book in my book is, uh, let's see, Tidy Magic, the revolutionary, uh, oh, oh I've, no, I've forgotten the subtitle. Um, <laughs> I've totally forgotten it. Um, something about, oh, the ra- radical Zen approach to revolutionize, oh, to, to, to tidying up and to, revolutionizing your life or something mm-hmm. like that. It's got a ridiculously, ridiculously long <laughs> subtitle, um, which I thought was funny. Um, but the, yeah, no, when, when, you know, because I was writing about objects, I was writing about things and I was writing a character, Annabelle, who's, um, you know, uh, has a fraught relationship with, you know, with her possessions. Um, you know, I was, I was thinking a lot about objects and, and, you know, the, our relationships, you know, with our things. And, um, and I was just always fascinated watching, you know, the sort of Marie Kondo phenomenon, right, happen, global phenomenon happen. And, um, and it, one of the things that was so interesting to me about this was, you know, that she, what she's, you know, sort of proposing here is really, you know, sort of Japanese culture, you know, a kind of a Japanese cultural attitude towards 
objects, right? Mm -hmm. Where you treat them with respect, mm -hmm. right? And, um, you know, so that if you have a pair of socks, you know, that has a hole, you know, that have holes in them, um, you, you know, you, you don't just throw them out in the garbage, right? You, you hold them and you, you know, you thank them. You have a kind of moment of gratitude and then you throw them out, right? Mm -hmm. um, so there's just this kind of intermediate step of appreciating the things that you have and the, the service that they provided, right? And before, you know, before throwing them out. And, and it, you know, it sounds, you know, it sounds a little bit woo woo, but there is something very beautiful about it too, you know? Mm -hmm. And it, it occurred to me that, you know, Marie Kondo is doing a, doing us a, you know, a huge favor um, by, you know, encouraging us to be a little bit more respectful of, you know, the material objects in the world, because um, certainly, you know, we live in a consumer capitalist, you know, um, culture, you know, and, and so many of our environmental problems are, are, you know, due to that. And, mm -hmm. you know, when, you know, we were surrounded by objects that have their own obsolescence built into them, you know, uh, um, it's a feature, not a bug, right? So, right. Um, you know, it, that's, that's kind of problematic. And so I just thought that, um, I, I loved that, you know, that this, um, you know, that, that this woman from Japan was, was having this kind of influence. Um, and, and so I, you know, I wrote, um, I, I wanted to kind of include that in, you know, in, in my book. Um, but I don't, you know, I, I, Marie Kondo comes out of a Shinto tradition, which is, you know, really more of an animistic tradition. And I was more interested in, um, in, in bringing kind of Buddhist elements mm -hmm. um, into the book. Um, and so, you know, I, I, you know, the homage to Marie Kondo is there, but my character is, you know, is a Buddhist nun. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, she's, she's writing these books in order to, you know, try to save this dilapidated temple that she's inherited. And, um, uh, you know, she finds herself suddenly at the heart of this, you know, sort of media empire, um, which she didn't really, you know, count on. She didn't really anticipate, but um, uh, yeah, that's how, that's kind of how she came about as wow. a character in the book. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it just feels like there's, it's like this diametrically opposed, like there's characters that love objects and there's characters that love a lack of objects. <laughs> in this book and i just love hearing them fight it out as much yeah. as the book and benny <laughs> yeah i mean i would say that that you know that the you know the the character of her name is you know i icon mm -hmm. um that she loves objects too you know right now. it's just that she has a um she has a kind of a different way of relating to them you know yes um right sort of seeing that objects are transient that they're impermanent that you know she's got a whole philosophy around it right it makes me think about the Walter Benjamin essay and a conversation that Christopher and I have been having, frankly, for years <laughs> now, but it's come up a lot because we've both moved in the last year. It's technically, it'll be a year mm. that my wife and I left Brooklyn and moved into a house on Sunday. Mm. Christopher wow. just moved into a new apartment, but mm -hmm. that process of we're both book collectors. And then what do you do when you move? It's the most painful part of moving is boxing up all of the books just in general, because then you have to carry all of them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's just literally the most. Literally, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but thinking about that question of why do we have them? What is important about yeah. them? And I, I had never read that essay, and I, I was curious about it as I was reading the book and kept seeing it pop up. And mm -hmm. then when you suggested that we dive into it on the show, it was it, it felt so perfect. Again, that thing of like, the serendipity of things coming together it was like, oh, this is an uncannily good choice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's great. It's a great essay, isn't it? It's so good. Yeah. Just to remind everyone, we're talking uh, Unpacking My Library, a talk about book collecting by Walter Benjamin, which if you haven't read it, if you just type that into Google, a PDF comes right up that's very nicely scanned and you'll feel like you're back in college. <laughs> it reminds me of my student readers for a lot of classes. Yeah, um, yeah exactly. And yeah, I, I'd love to hear about why you brought the essay to us. What um, what made you want us to read it with you? Well, I, I, let me, I guessed that you guys were probably book collectors given your line <laughs> of work, you know? Um, <laughs> And it was just, uh, you know, and, and the, you know, it was such a, um, you know, uh, a, 
core piece of the inspiration for um, you know, the Book of Form and Emptiness as well. Um, and, you know, it's, it's in it, um, Benjamin is, is um, you know, is talking about the, you know, uh, literally about unpacking his library, doing exactly what you guys, you know, were doing, you know, have been doing, right? Um, taking his, his library collection, and he had a, you know, he had a, he was a collector. I mean, he mm -hmm. was, he collected a lot of different things, right? He collected toys and snow globes and, you know, just all sorts of stuff. Um, but he also collected books. And um, it's, I think it's such an interesting article because, you know, the, the kinds of things that he says about books um, and about our human relationship to books as mm -hmm. objects um, is, is really, I don't know, it's very moving to me. Mm -hmm. um, it's one of the essays, you know, he, Benjamin also just has this range of voices, you know, he can, he can write in, in, you know, really, you know, dense philosophical, you know, treaties. Um, but then he can write something like unpacking, unpacking my library, which is, you know, very conversational, right? Mm -hmm. It's very colloquial. Mm -hmm. It's very inviting. Um, he, in it, he's, he's talking, um, you know, to his readers, um, which I thought also, you know, I think, you know, I, my book was kind of doing a little bit of that as well, you know, sort of addressing the reader directly. And, um, but he, he talks about, you know, he talks about um, books in, in just such a, such a lovely way. And I, anyway, that's why I, that's why I, um, you know, uh, wanted to suggest, suggest it for this. I mean, just a few quotes that just really popped from, you know, me as I was reading it is um, this idea of, um, you know, every passion borders on the chaotic, but the, mm -hmm. collect, but the collector's passion borders on the chaos of memories. Like that's mm. so beautiful, right? Because that's exactly yeah. what you're talking about when you're unpacking your library, you know, when you're looking at your books, every book has a kind of aura to it. And yeah. some books, like I have my Riverside Shakespeare here from college and all of my marginalia, you know, little notes, you know, when yeah. I was just like so excited about Shakespeare and, you know, exclamation points and, you know, quotes that the, you know, the professor, uh, you know, things that the professor was saying, you know, as well as, you know, notes to the person who was sitting next to me in class and, <laughs> you know, all of that stuff is in there. Right. And it's a chaos of memory. Right. Right. It's exactly what it is. So anyway, yeah. that's why that's why I um, suggested it. There there was this part in the essay where he's quoting somebody else where he says, like, um, have you have you read your have you read these books? And he's like, I've read less than one tenth of the books that I own. Like, how often do you bring out your like fine china? Right. And um, and I, I, I loved that because that, you know, for all the people with a large stack of unread books, they can like clutch that to themselves. Um, but also just the um, it made me think because I'm trying to get this that um, fraction to be different. I would like my because my fraction was about half and half or 60, 40 books unread um, mm -hmm. at the 60. And I'm trying to change that down. Um, and I'm curious for you, Ruth, um, where's where's your collection of, where would you put your fractions? Well, right now, I think my collection, I have more unread books than I have read books. And the reason is because um, I've, it's not that I've moved, it's just that I've, I'm, the place where I'm living now was intended to be a temporary, you know, mm. I, I was only planning to be here for a couple of years. And so I didn't bring my library with me. My library is still in Canada on this, you know, on this remote island in Desolation Sound um, where I, you know, where I live. Right. right. Um, but then, um, you know, I, I came to um, Massachusetts, you know, um, to teach for a couple of years and intended to go back and you know, one thing after another happened, you know, first they gave me a, you know, a job, a temporary, you know, a permanent <laughs> job. And, um, and which was nice, right? This is at Smith College, right? They gave me a, a job. And then, um, and then, you know, the pandemic happened. So mm -hmm. I just haven't yet, you know, most of my library is there. And what's here is, you know, mostly stuff that I that I haven't read. Um, and, and I console myself too, with the Walter Benjamin, you know, idea that, I mean, he, he thinks, you know, according to, this that um you know that that really your collection it's almost um it's almost your responsibility to have more unread books than read <laughs> books right <laughs> that a yes. true a true collector will always have you know will always make sure not to read every book that he has <laughs> right right yeah i collect 
books and my wife is also a big reader but she is a she is a very minimalist person she loves to get rid of things she loves to like clean things out and she helped me learn how to cull my red shelves mm -hmm. but it is that thing where like i read this essay and i i emailed the link to her and i was like hey listen <laughs> <laughs> like uh-oh this you know <laughs> This seems like a pretty good life. I don't know. Because um, I do, it feels weird to be, I mean, it's so nice to have a library and to have space that I don't have to get rid of things. But mm -hmm. it does feel weird to have my, my unread versus read is probably, it's probably 90% read, 10% unread wow. right now. Wow. And that's, I mean, that's with like probably 120 unread books. But, mm that there is that like once it starts to get to a certain scale how can you deal with it and also if i could i would just give me a let me just buy the whole bookstore <laughs> <laughs> that's i mean that's the other part the thing that he he mentions it right at the top of the essay where where books are like a sort of stagecraft mm -hmm. you know like it's not just the object it's like it's making the room what it is like don't you want to mm -hmm. read your book amongst books like you look at pictures of the Morgan Library, and all I think is like, I don't, I don't think like, oh, I want to go and see those. It's just like, nah, I just want to be there and yeah. <laughs> read my book that I brought, just to be in the the right aesthetic space of mind. Yes, absolutely. No, I mean, I think that's why libraries have so much power. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and and um, it's always interesting to me how um, you know modern library architects, you know, are always trying to put lots of glass into libraries as though that's going to make the library more appealing. But to me, you know, I mean, I think there's a ratio talking about ratios, you know, the ratio of the more glass you have, the fewer books you're going to have. Right. Yep. And, and so, you know, that seems very skewed to me because I want to be in a place that's filled with books when I, you know, read my book, whether I'm reading a library book or, you know, or something else. Right. Um, right. It's, it's precisely that the presence of other books that, you know, that that's so magical. Yeah, because they yeah. talk to each other too. I you know? agree, they do. Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, I had this, I mean, this was a little fanciful, but this idea that books are connected through this kind of rhizomatic network, you know, they're, they're constantly talking to each other in, you know, in, in a kind of subterranean way, right? Yeah. yeah. I like, like book libraries are pando. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. So I, cool. I love that. <laughs> makes me think a little bit of um the jasper ford series with the second book the well of lost plots yeah all of those like the miasma from like books unfinished books you know like that would be it that's a shakier library built on top of that um, <laughs> that's great that's <laughs> The other thing in this essay that I just wish that I could experience for myself is this in-person around a table book auction that he describes being right? because it's just like eBay is not that like I don't know like there's yeah. nothing like this like I'm going to use all of my wiles to like right, make sure right, right. I get the book that I want. Right. I loved the um, I loved his description of um yeah, yeah, he he you know, he paints these scenarios, you know, mm -hmm. and 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 tells us his strategies, right? Um yeah. but he's also, you know, he's talking about oh, that's right. It was also it was before that he was talking about book catalogs, mm -hmm. right? And I thought that was really interesting because of course they had, you know, I mean they, they didn't, you know, Walter Benjamin did not have the internet, right? He did not have, you know, um, you know, sort of he, he couldn't buy used books um on Amazon. Um but one of the things that he talks about is how when you're looking at a catalog, you know, you have to imagine what condition that book might be in. You might know the book, yeah. you might have you might have read the book, you might know it intimately, but you've never seen the particular object that you're going to be ordering mm. from this used book catalog, right? And so you have to kind of imagine, well, who owned that book before, you know, and what kind of condition is it going to come to me in? And, you know, is it is it going to be touched by the previous owner and changed in some way. And, and I thought that was really, that was a beautiful yeah. section as well. Cause that's, that's when you buy used books online, that's of course, right. Yeah. What you're yeah. dealing with. 
you never know. You, yeah, you it's like, what does it mean when they say lightly used? Right, exactly. Or acceptable, right? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Acceptable to whom, you know? <laughs> the binding is still mostly intact. So, okay, great. <laughs> It's it's always sad too when you buy when you do buy a used book and you're thinking you're going to get a certain cover, mm. but you just get sent a completely <sighs> different cover than you expected. Yeah, or the edition. You know, you think yeah. you're buying a, a you know the the third edition, and in fact you're only buying the you know the the whatever fifth or you know whatever. Yeah. Right. That that's always that's always frightening. Yeah, you're still. It's it, we still have it. We just have it in much more annoying way. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, I could talk about our book collections um, <laughs> for the rest of time, but I think we need to turn our minds to recommending books into the ears of our readers. Yes, uh, reader listeners. Drew, do you want to start us off? I do. Again? I'm also going to recommend a place. Okay. I've got a book that's next. But the place is probably my favorite place in the entire world. Um, it's up there with like the lobby of the National Theater in London. And that is the Boston Athenaeum. Mm -hmm. I stumbled upon it uh, when I was in college. It's right down the street from the state house with these big red doors that say 10 and a half Beacon Street. And I remember just even that, I was like, what is this? What is this place? Why is it a half? What are these big red doors? And it's um, one of the oldest libraries in the country, but it was a member. It's still a member's library. There are, you can visit, um, but it's five floors. It has these like... Um, each, each floor has different things. They have a collection of maps. They have this thing called the drum that is sort of their, it's most of their stacks, but it's this like incredible climate controlled space and it's super dense and tight. The reading room on the fifth floor has this incredible vaulted ceiling. Um, it's just, it's like, I've had some of the most magical experiences there. And I, I, there's nowhere else that I've ever found like it. Um, and so if you're in, if you're in Boston at some point, go give it a visit. If you live in Boston, get a membership. It is 10,000% worth every penny. Um, and then the book is, it's actually speaking of editions. It's going to be reissued from tour next August. Um, and Ruth, it's, it was written by one of your colleagues, Andrea Hairston's Redwood and Wildfire. Oh, cool. Yes. I talked to Andrea uh, for this tour podcast that I was doing about her most recent book, Master of Poisons. But before I talked to her, I was diving back through her back catalog. And I love a book that's about theater. I think Andrea's just such a brilliant um theatrical mind and it comes through on the page but it's a novel about hoodoo coming into like vaudeville and stage performances in a slightly magical slightly alternate history way in the first half of the 20th uh, 20th century mm. and i just loved it it's one of those books that i found an old copy of it it, it came out i think in 2011 2010, 2011, I had found a copy of it at uh, Half Moon Books in Kingston, which is my local used bookstore, and had had it on my shelf for a while, and it just, it was the perfect time to read it. I fell through it. I'm so, it's one of those books, too, that I'm so excited that now it's coming back into print, because I can mm -hmm. sort of push it into people's hands instead of being like, you know, good luck finding the $300 copy on eBay. Mm -hmm. Um yeah, I just, I really, really loved it, and I'm stoked for more people to read it so I could talk to people about it. Yeah. Ruth, how about you? Cool. Um, okay, I guess I would like to recommend, um, I would like to recommend 
Walter Benjamin's Illuminations, um, where, you know, which, which is um, the collection of essays that uh, contains unpacking a library and um, unpacking my library. And so that's, you know, it, it's, it has a lot of other wonderful essays in it as well, including um, uh, art in the time of mechanical reproduction, which is a, mm -hmm. a really, you know, fantastic essay. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, there's a, there's a range again, you know, you get a sense of, of Benjamin's range of voice when, you know, in, in that collection. And I, so I really appreciate that. Um, and then I was thinking about, I was thinking about Borges and, um, and I was, you know, frantically trying to <clears throat> remember, you know, I've, I've actually got a stack of Borges right here. Um, I've, I've got Ficciones, which is amazing. Um, this one, uh, Labyrinths, which is mm -hmm. really, really wonderful too. The Garden of the Forking Paths is mm -hmm. a story in here, which is so fantastic. I think Library of Babylon is also in here. Mm -hmm. um, as, and then there's a, another essay called Borges and I, right, where he, you know, he talks about you know, the other Borges, right, <laughs> who, who shows up in, in the, the Aleph, right, the, um, um, and is, is the Aleph in this book too? I'm not sure. I can't, I never can remember, you know, he, he's so prolific that, that it, it's hard to remember which, which books the various stories are in. Um, so anyway, I would recommend anything by, by Borges. He's, he's amazing. Um, and then since um, we talked about it earlier, Anyway Cafe um, on 4th Street and 4th Avenue, 4th uh, Street and 4th Avenue, I think right around there in, uh, in Manhattan. It's, it's on 2nd Avenue and Second Street and Second Avenue, not Fourth Street and Fourth Avenue. Fantastic um, place for Russian food and uh, Russian um, martinis. And then the other thing that came to mind as we were talking um, was a TV show that I've just binge watched, and and I'm probably the last person on earth to um, to watch it. But it's um, you know we were talking about. Uh, finding the teenager in yourself right and i was thinking about um you know how a character like uh now in a tale for the time being just seemed like right there and so accessible and so when i saw this tv show i i just was absolutely gobsmacked um pen 15. Mm, yeah. right because you know it, it it's two 30 something you know year old women playing themselves at 13 right mm -hmm. and all of the other characters in the show the cast are you know appropriately aged 13 year olds and 14 year olds <laughs> they're young teenagers right and then there are these two women you know who are playing who are playing themselves at 13 and it's so awkward Ooh. right it's so <laughs> yeah. painful right and at first it just seems weird right but after a while it just becomes it you know it just becomes so completely normal mm -hmm. and um and you fall into it and you believe it and you know it's um yeah it, it's just astonishing and one of the characters one of the women is um maya maya erskine and she's um she's mixed race half japanese half anglo like me and it's and she she must be in her 30s i guess um and, and that was to see, she, she's a amazing physical comedian, right? Mm. And she, she's, you know, her, her she, she's the writer behind the show as well. And the, you know, the material that she's writing is so edgy and it's just really out there. And then she acts one of the roles, right? Um, mm -hmm. And to, to, for me to watch a, you know, a mixed race, you know, Asian American woman doing this kind of like really edgy physical comedy um, was just stunning because yeah. this was, it really said something about how the world has changed since I was, you know, since I was 13 and then also since I was 30, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. the, the, you know, the world is different now. And I really, I, I'm just so in awe of, of what, you know, um, what people like you know like her are doing um it i just think it's fantastic wow nice all right christopher bring us home uh, <laughs> i'm gonna recommend two little things one is um the good people at ben and jerry's have done this all this wonderful service where they just decided to stop 
messing around with that ice cream part of what they make and just serve us the cookie dough bites. <laughs> They've just started bagging those. They have now multiple flavors. They even have a vegan version of it. Um, I love their cookie dough ice cream, but I also just love that cookie dough on its own. You keep it in the freezer. It's the best little like dessert. I didn't snack. know that this was a thing. Holy shit. Snack snacking cookie dough, they call it. Are you are you Amazing. getting are you getting product placement for this? Is that I my wish. <laughs> I wish. And then no. can we can we have some? <laughs> <laughs> I wish. Yeah. <laughs> Eventually, because I I do like to mention snacks on here, and eventually someday they someone will wise up and and let be sponsor us because I would I would go all in for for someone to do that with us. No, I just loved it. I just think it's great. Um, and and you know something that goes down so well with snackable cookie dough, um, is the newest Stephen King novel. Um, I actually listened to it. Paul Sparks, the actor, reads it. It's called Billy Summers, and it's about a, um, you know, it's a, a gun for hire that only kills other um, assassins. And, uh, but this book is strange because in the middle, like, not in the middle of it, the very beginning, he gets hired and his cover is that um, he's going to pretend to be an author. <laughs> so, and um, his fixer guy who's he's sort of reporting to will be his literary agent and um <laughs> and he actually in he has the time in the uh, this office building to sort of do something so he's like well why not why not write a book and so there's also this meta text in the in the novel of like the novel that he's writing and um he's a he's a a vet so it's his story of he's writing about what what happened to him when he went he was in Afghanistan. Um, and it's, it's a really good book. It's, it's completely not scary at all. It's not, it's built, it's um, Stephen King doing his best sort of thriller writing that's not like a horror novel. Um, but there is a fun, at the very end, there is a great connection. He always likes to connect his universes and he, and he does it really sweetly here. Um, and so, yeah, that's, uh, those are my two recommendations. Nice. And of course, I, I'm going to vociferously recommend <laughs> once again, because I've already done this before, but uh, the Book of Form and Emptiness, it yeah. just absolutely bowled me over. I had a five hour, four hour uh, train ride, Boston to New York. And I read most of it on that ride. And it was just the most absolutely wonderful reading experience um, to be able to just stay in your world um, and with these characters who are completely memorable and I can't wait to experience it again someday, possibly as an audiobook, who knows? Um, but so thank you for that. Oh, thank you so much for, for saying that and thank you for reading it so well. You know, my theory about readers is that you know, that, that readers and writers co-create books, right? We don't, writers don't do it, we don't do it on our own, right? It, it, these, are, these are collaborations and um, it's nice to have a collaborator like you guys. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for, the, for the listeners at home, go buy that book. Also, we very much appreciate it when you go on iTunes and rate us. And we really like it when you go to our patreon.com slash SMDB. Give us some money to continue making the show. We love that. Um, and that's it. I guess. Thank you, Ruth, for coming on the show. We This was so fantastic. This was amazing. Well, thank you so much. This was really fun. This was like the funnest podcast I've done. So this oh. is actually the, the funnest media that I've done for this book. So oh, that's what wow. we strive for. That's yeah. what we want. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I will I will pass it along to, to others. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Pass Thanks. along the recommendation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>